Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I think we're going to see two things happen concurrently. One, people who want to hold on to the past, bring in blockbusters to rebuild attendance and feeling that's the goal. You're going to see that happening. On the other hand, there are all kinds of concerns about whether or not the blockbusters really advance the mission and engaging a broad public, engaging constituencies who may not think museums are places for them. That's also been brought into sharp focus this past year. And museums are sincerely rethinking this. That's David Resnikow, president and founder of Resnikow & Associates, the nation's leading agency providing unified planning, strategic communications, and consulting services to cultural institutions and arts enterprises. With clients ranging from the Musée du Louvre to the Park Avenue Armory to the Metropolitan Museum to the Apollo Theater, he has helped design and implement programs for over 125 art museums and biennials, performing arts institutions, universities and colleges, art fairs and galleries, foundations and philanthropists, and government agencies and corporations. His work also encompasses strategic planning and management consulting, program planning, and revenue-generating initiatives. David is vice chairman and past chair of the board of the Mark Morris Dance Group. He received his Bachelor of Arts in Art History and Aesthetics from Washington University in St. Louis. David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Max. Great to be here. Well, listen, I want to start with a very obvious question for a guy like you who solves all these problems. In normal times, your clients call you when they're facing a sudden and an unexpected challenge. But most of 2020 and 2021 has been a continuous challenge due both to the pandemic and awakenings about racial justice. So I'm wondering, how has that changed the kinds of advice that you and your team are called upon to provide? Well, it both changes the advice we provide, but it also enables us to reinforce the advice we provide every time. And something that's really crucial when thinking about communications for museums and cultural institutions is how do you advance mission through your communications program mm -hmm. and campaigns? It's not about selling tickets necessarily. That's one goal. It's not simply about getting attention. It's really how do you infuse the news and information landscape and promote the ideas that are embedded within the programs that you present. On the one hand, it gave us a chance to remind them about that, about what their core purpose is. At the same time, it enabled us to also say to them, we're not talking about attendance in the same way anymore. We're talking mm -hmm. about engagement. Mm -hmm. So with closure, engagement became important. With the social justice uprising, thinking about who your audiences are, how you engage them, the assumptions you bring forward in everything you do, how you operate, how you program, how you communicate what you do, all had to be revisited and reinforced and thought about in new ways. My experience working with you is that you often raise questions that may be very obvious ones, but that chief executives may not have logged on to. And you often serve as a kind of conscience and a reminder to people. Is that the way you look at your work? It's interesting. I like the word conscience. I think that's really crucial in anything that institutions do, and therefore to be that voice that mm -hmm. brings forth information from outside the sometimes hermetic world that institutions operate within. Um, I always view ourselves as the advocates for external audiences. And it's very easy for institutions to become focused on their peers, on engage with scholars, the culture, the community, the funding community. But they really have a great and broad public mission. And so for us to come back and say, you need to think about how you speak to these constituencies. What's going to draw them in and engage them? What's relevant to them? And yeah. that was actually brought into really sharp focus this past year. 
And we're watching museums reopen and opening hours are extending for those places that have already been open. To your point about engagement, will there be some lasting changes in expectations, for example, about the demand for big loan exhibitions? I hope so and think so. I think we're going to see two things happen concurrently. One, people who want to hold on to the past, bring in blockbusters to rebuild attendance and feeling that's the goal. You're going to see that happening. On the other hand, there are all kinds of concerns about whether or not the blockbusters really advance the mission and engaging a broad public, engaging constituencies who may not think museums are places for them. That's also been brought into sharp focus this past year. And museums are sincerely rethinking this and looking to see how can they work with what they have, which saves money, by the way. How can they think about how that appeals to their constituencies? What's the kind of programming that's going to keep them vital within their communities? And while blockbusters can serve a purpose in drawing in large crowds, it's also a little bit like junk food. Many museums have faced difficulties, but very few have closed or seen their collections disappear. What does all that reveal about the realities of admissions income as a part of museum revenue in general? Well, if you look at national studies of what percentage of income is generated through attendance, it's actually very small. And then when you factor in the cost of operating the front of house, accounting, all the other things that surround collecting admissions, it's not a big contributor for the vast majority of museums. There are exceptions, those in New York, a few others in San Francisco. But by and large, it's not the way in which to think about staying financially healthy. David, you know well the press focuses on it as the Holy Grail. The art newspaper runs an annual survey of bodies per hour at big shows. It's a fascination for boards and for grant makers. But in the end, to your point, and I've been on this hobby horse for a long time, as you know, how do we get people to stop focusing on that as the primary objective? An important dimension here is to think about art museums in terms of their civic impact as educational resources, social resources, cultural resources, they advance all those goals through the arts. And when one looks at that educational mission, how do you infuse the ideas and issues that are present in the art they present and exhibitions and programming? A lot happens outside the walls of the museum. It's not just what happens inside. There's nothing greater than experiencing art directly. At the same time, there are ways to push those ideas, those dialogues, to frame and lead and form discussion of issues beyond the walls of the museum. David, it's high-minded, but listen, we've all watched as these art-related experiences, like the Van Gogh projections that are proliferating everywhere, these have seized the popular imagination. So is there a shift in how museums are viewing their obligation to provide, let's call it spectacle, over substance? First, I don't consider that those Van Gogh light shows art. They're sound and light shows, as we used to see in historic sites in Europe. There is, again, this interest in drawing in audiences, and they feel that they can that is best achieved, some people think, by having these kinds of spectacles. I think that's a dangerous route to follow because it's not really about art. It's a just titillation. Museums have to have confidence in the art they hold and the programs they mount that that can capture the imagination of the public, and they need to find ways to make that happen. And that means speaking the language of the audiences that you're trying to reach, infusing the media they consume, 
and moving beyond this traditionalist kind of approach that museums still manage to perpetuate, even as they've grown attendance over the past decades. They really need to think about who they're engaging, how they're engaging them, and to find materials or ways to show that their programming is relevant to these constituencies, these audiences. It's true. There's still, there's a reward system whereby directors are rewarded for certain, hitting certain marks, whether it's the budget being in balance, the attendance growing year to year, or good press, which you are singly responsible for (laughs) assuring for those places that can get it. But everybody looks to the biggest museums in the biggest tourist markets as models. And as you've mentioned, New York, San Francisco, those are outliers. How are museums faring post-COVID, if we can almost call it that, in non-tourist cities in the Midwest and the South, for example? I'd like to say the majority of our clients are not on the coast. And for them, it's been a year of reassessment. Both the pandemic, together with the social justice movement, has really caused them to take a step back and say, what are we doing? How are we doing it? Is it working? And to have this incredible disruption first from the pandemic, to think about how do we advance mission, how do we engage the audience, really was a wake-up call for them. That, coupled with the social justice uprising, made them really start to think about what is their role in their communities? How do they advance it? What are the assumptions they're working from? How do they think about their programming? And I'd say it's a period of adjustment. It's been tough for them. It's been tough for all museums, but it is really now a time of rebuilding and to, I think also you can see a slowing down of special exhibitions. You're going to see a focus on smaller shows, more community-based programs, different kinds of outreach into the community. These are interim steps that will then lead to creating an institution that can serve a broader segment of your community. And that's really the ultimate goal. That's the mission. It's not the headcount. That's nice, but that's not the only metric one should use. David, is it fair to say that museums that do not rely on earned revenue so much, that are free, for example, have suffered less financially during the downturn because they didn't rely on that income to start with? That's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about that, but... For most museums, attendance-based revenue streams contribute very little. It's really about having a mix of revenue streams that support you and that feed the annual budget. I think there is an advantage when you're not thinking about attendance as driving revenue. Mm -hmm. It changes thought processes. People still want to see high attendance, but ultimately, I think museums behave and think differently when they don't have to worry about the gate. Speaking of museums and gate, you've helped major collectors, as opposed to museums, who are contemplating setting up private museums. Can you give us a little glimpse of what it is you suggest they consider as collectors before they take the step of starting up a private museum? Well, I should say the first time a private collector approached me to talk about setting up a museum, I suggested he give his collection to a major (laughs) museum in his hometown, and I was fired. So that's, that I learned a lesson there. However, um, <laughs> I didn't hear my client, I guess. Right. But where does your museum fit within the arts ecology of the city? What is it going to help fulfill? Is it going to be additive, competitive? Where is it going to fit within, through time, not just today, but through time, fit within the resources that are available to the public in the city where they're mm-hmm. building their museum? How is it going to be sustained through time? 
and to also make sure it doesn't cannibalize draw off resources from existing institutions. So these are important considerations when looking at where you place your museums. I think a wonderful example, I would say, which you're familiar with, is the National Sculpture Center. Ray Nasher contemplated whether or not it should be part of the art museum. The collection is so large, so significant. For it to simply be a department would have been wonderful. But by placing the National Sculpture Center adjacent to the museum, it created this additional resource and this kind of opportunity for collaboration and synergy, which, as you know, is important. It can be a little complex, but I think it's a very smart way to approach looking at how you place a museum into a community. Mm-hmm. And that's in Dallas, Dallas for our yes. listeners. And I think part of what Ray imagined is that if it didn't work, it could always end up in the Dallas Museum of Art being across the street. The National Gallery of Art has its sculpture garden effectively across the street. Yeah, and, and, and it's also a custom-built facility for sculpture with indoor mm-hmm. and outdoor space. It's the kind of thing that the museum could not have done on its own. Yeah. So again, this is something that adds to you know the resources in the community, and it's something distinctive. There are ways in which it interplays by being adjacent to the museum. They provide context to one another and extend one another's programming. In addition to the visual arts, you do a lot of work with performing arts organizations. So what are they saying to you in that they previously relied on selling seats? And now people pretty much don't want to sit next to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Still, I understand that. Um, The performing arts was hit much harder because... Most nonprofit performing arts institutions generate 40 per 60% of their revenue from ticket sales. And unsold seats is unsold inventory, and you can't recapture it. And so for them, it's really been a much harder equation to come back and figure out how to do that. So with our clients in the performing arts, there's been a lot more thinking about how do they present offsite. Mm-hmm. Or how do they come up with configurations of seating or hybrid some people in the house, some people outside? But there's no good model here because they depend so much on ticket sales for their revenues. Right now, what we're seeing is this kind of testing or showing your passport that you're vaccinated or having tests on site. And that's a newer kind of approach. People have to build an extra 15 minutes. I think they're not sure if people are going to get used to it. It's not a 100% safeguard, but it's getting safer and safer. There's been no real solution yet. And, you know, we all live with risk. We have to figure out how much risk we're going to live with. Right now, I think a lot of people are not going to live with the risk of sitting in a fixed seat venue. Flexible space venues are doing fine. But David, what about anti-vaxxer audiences? Does that mean that performing arts presentations in traditional red states, maybe, maybe people don't want to show up if they don't have a passport? I think you're going to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't surprise me. And there's also been talk about having segregated seating with vaxxers yeah. vaccinated <laughs> in one, one area, anti-vaxxers in the others. Oh. It doesn't sound so good. No. I think what you're going to find is that the audiences are not going to come back. You know, right. depends how much risk you want to live with. We all live with risk. This one seems a little um, intimidating right now, shall we say. Right. Too big a risk. You also work with government ministries abroad, and I'm curious how they measure impact and success differently from your U.S. clients. Where do I begin? Um, (laughs) (laughs) The difference is that I'd say, first of all, in these places where they have government agencies dedicated to the arts and culture, there's respect and pride in culture. 
as part of the identity, as part of the character of the place. And therefore, it has significance for everybody who lives there and works there. In the U.S., there's still this sort of sense that the arts are something on the outside, it's something other. And um, so there's a different feeling towards the arts as it's for a select group, which is, again, what we're talking about, how, you know, part of our work is how do we change that? That's been the driving force of my company. How do we make the arts part of the day-to-day lives of everybody? But in Europe, because there are these government agencies involved, because they put a priority on it, because they say make it part of the character and identity, it really has an effect in terms of a sense of ownership by the public and a sense of responsibility. It protects the institutions. It makes sure that they are seen as important and defining elements of the country, of the people who live there. Very different from the U.S., I'd say, but we're, we're getting there. Um, mm-hmm. But again, that's why I'm in this business. Well, you and I worked together, it's now a decade ago, when the Indianapolis Museum of Arts curator, Lisa Fryman, was commissioner of the U.S. Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. What do you predict about the vitality of global cultural tourism going forward? Culture is going to continue to be a major driver of tourism. I think people travel, you know, when we look at people travel, people who go to Paris will visit the Louvre, even if they haven't visited the museum in their own hometown. And there might be a number of reasons for that, because it's famous or whatever. But I think people really, for whatever reason, when they go on these trips, and maybe it's because they're out of their own home environment or setting, that they really start to pursue these kinds of cultural activities and they put value on them. Look, I grew up in New York, and I didn't visit the Statue of Liberty until my French cousin and family came and wanted to see it. You know, there's that kind of, maybe it's part of a little bit of your hometown syndrome, but I really think tourism is going to be a really important driver still. But let's hope not those cruise ships in the Venice Oh my God. Yes. I'm sorry to see that they are um, back. I just came back from Venice for the uh, Architecture Biennale, and there were no tourists. Um, The city was a different city. You didn't have the crush, the frenzy. It looked different. It felt different. Obviously, it was different, not just because of the density, but because it didn't have that kind of frenzy that that kind of mass tourism brings to a city. That must have been pleasurable. It was unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you about another sector of the art world, which is corporate contributors. And you've worked with quite a few. What are they signaling these days? With social issues, with racial justice, for example, there's a lot of effort to align companies with progressive causes. How are they looking to the arts to further that? Many of them find the arts as a good way to foster um, or advance their goals of corporate social responsibility. The arts do provide a forum for exchange, for sharing, for drawing together people in a village green, a common cause that museums often provide to communities. But there is a tremendous focus now on making sure that they support those projects that advance social justice, equity, inclusion. And the corporations have been very, very responsive to this. And that's great to see. And really pushing their resources towards advancing these goals. As are the foundations. There's been a great response, I must say, in this sector. Then again, there are those corporations that are looking to use the arts for marketing. That's Mm -hmm. not going to stop either. But that's coming out of marketing budgets, not the social responsibility initiatives. Can we touch on deaccessioning? It's not something that is easily understood by the public at large, but it certainly has been a moment of truth for institutions. What are you advising institutions that are thinking about collections being basically sold to pay bills? I think that this is a very dangerous step to take 
in terms of treating the collections as an asset. And what it does, it undermines the whole confidence that donors will have that the collections, whatever they give, what they help acquire, would be held in trust. And my concern is you can't let short-term financial challenges cause you to do those things that will injure you long-term. You just have to tough it out, ride it out. I know it's easy for me to say. Once you go down this road where you can treat the collection like an asset, not only do you create problems in terms of donations and fundraising, because if you can sell something, why bother raising money? Why contribute? But also, it could affect the tax status. And this is not something I would, I would fool around with right now. It's, yeah. So I advise my clients to not do it. They should follow the traditional paths of deaccessing those works that are duplicative or not relevant to the collection and use those funds for acquisitions that strengthen the collection, but not yeah. to use for operations in any way. In the last few months, I'm sure journalists with whom you've been in touch and your team has been in touch have had a variety of questions. They often ask you for storylines, don't they? I mean, they're themselves struggling as a discipline in the face of closed museums, closed performing arts organizations. How do you help reporters and journalists find their way to a story that's both interesting and relevant? I think the, the first one is to break the patterns of the review-preview kind of reporting. And to really, as we say, the institutions, taking a step back and assessing your role, your mission, mm -hmm. um, say the same thing to journalists. How do you get into a story? How do you enter something? What's an element that you may not think about that is not the usual one presented to you? Because there is this syndrome where big name shows or discovery of artists or big gifts, the journalists want that. And then the museums push it and it becomes this sort of echo chamber. And so I'm generalizing here, but that, that happens. And so the question is, how do you look for those other kinds of stories? What happens inside the museum? There are incredible stories that are involved with conservation, involved with research, involved with the way in which exhibitions are conceived. We see these on occasion, but these are actually stories that can provide great insight into the works of art themselves and the role that museums play in communities and add another dimension to how we think about the arts and how we think about museums. It's really just trying to open the curtain a little bit more and not waiting to pull back the curtain at that big moment. You have a challenging role in that you work with publicists at museums, you work with journalists and reporters, you work therefore with editors, and then there are publishers, and everybody has a different point of departure. How do you navigate all of those different stakeholders when you're trying to get something covered? You just have to psych it out, Max. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> it's, I always think it's important, you need to think about the editor, what's driving their work in terms of what they want to achieve through mm -hmm. the outlet that they are part of and which they have to keep yeah. in business. You don't have to work with the reporter and think about their disposition and what their interests are what they want to achieve themselves. It's just thinking through the whole network of interaction in which you think about the editor, the writer, the institution, what it wants to achieve, the pressures that the internal people face mm -hmm. um, in terms of what the expectations are of the curators and programmers. It's not just simply about getting press. I want to go back to that, what I said earlier. It's not simply about, hey, let's get some press. It's about mm -hmm. what kind of stories can we tell that are going to be valuable to the community we serve. How do we view media not only as a way to get people to participate in our programs, but to get the ideas embedded within the exhibitions or the work that we present out into the community to fuel discussion, to fuel thinking, to inspire people? 
The landscape shifted so radically when social media made itself felt. And you guys had to navigate a change. You were accustomed to, as we all were, a means of reportage and coverage that was fairly, it was a playbook. And yep. then it all changed. How did you adapt to that? How did, what kind of change did you have to make internally in the firm? Well, the adjustment was twofold in terms of the growth of social media as a vehicle for museums. And one was, how do we think about the way in which we can directly communicate to communities? How do we reach them? How do we set up these kinds of external wayfinding systems? That's how you have to think about it. And think about the kind of voice, imagery, messaging, and then how do you segment it since you're able to do that with social media? On the other side of the equation, we said social media is also a wing of the institution. It's a platform. So it's not just, again, about using it to market the institution to get people on site. And that's a pattern that so many institutions get caught up in. That's that attendance syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's saying, okay, we have this platform. It has certain qualities. It can reach people directly. It can be customized. It can be intimate. It can be playful. How do we take those qualities and extend our programming out through these platforms? You have to do both. It shouldn't be just one or the other. And so for us, it's really thinking about the news and information environment as a kind of dynamic symbiosis that moves in all directions at once. And how do yeah. we infuse the news and information environment? It requires agility in ways that are constantly a test, not only for you, but for the listener, the reader. And that's part of the challenge of what your profession has evolved to. Now, David, I've avoided asking you indiscreet questions because of what you do for a living. I know you can't be indiscreet. It's impossible for you. But... <laughs> Would you consider rewarding our patient listeners with an example of an unexpected situation you've had to help resolve? Okay, I have to find the right ones here. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two because they're, they're at other opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think I can talk about both without getting in too much trouble. One, and it's a long time ago, we were hired by the Vatican to help them deal with the controversy that arose around their cleaning and conservation of the Sistine Chapel frescoes. And to have the Vatican as a client was quite a trip, that's what I can tell you. As you can imagine, they have very strong opinions, they have ways of doing things, and to come in and advise the Vatican was great fun. And they knew all the great places to eat in Rome to our clients, so it was mm -hmm. a very satisfying experience. Back in the early 80s, I worked on the show at the Metropolitan Museum that was coincident with the cleaning project. And Gianluigi Colarucci, as you'll recall, oh my was God, yes. the restorer who passed away recently. And I went up on the scaffolding six times and I touched the ceiling. Gianluigi was an amazing host and he dealt with so much controversy in the Italian press. It was called the culto della sporcizia by some, the cult of dirt for yep. those people. <laughs> <laughs> who said, well, you can't touch the ceiling, and you, you helped really put it to rest. Yeah, but uh, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit, because the reason they hired us was because two noted art historians went to the Vatican, who were advising the Vatican, went to the Vatican and said, you need some help here, so you should speak to this agency. And so it was Fred Hart and Kathleen Weil Garris, who never agreed on anything. So the representative of the Vatican came and said, these two have never agreed on anything in the world, but they said, I should see you. And that's how we were hired by the Vatican. The other um, more recent fascinating assignment we got was to prepare for the presentation of a work that included live snails. Hmm. And to prepare for the kinds of protests that were expected, 
because of these snails being involved in an exhibition as part of a work and to do a Q&A, prepare security, and to just make sure that the snails were well looked after. So all in a day's work. And they didn't sign releases, these snails. That was part of the problem. <laughs> no, they barely moved. This is a great window into a very obscure world for most people, which is behind the scenes, behind the fame and fortune and crowds of art museums. There's Resnikow and Associates helping all these leaders. David, I appreciate your making time today to talk a bit about what you do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Max. It was fun. We've been speaking with David Resnikow, president and founder of Resnikow and Associates. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.